we're in this position where because we friend a lot says this a lot and i think it's funny because we were never cool or never really mainstream in any way we never became uncool <laughs> we, oh, i love that dude front lot is such he seems like such a dope dude i've had like brief interactions with him like on twitter and whatnot but he seems awesome dude and like his music is bananas dude like he's such a talented dude like i love that guy i don't think he realizes what a big fan i am of his friends romans countrymen lend me your ears hello everyone the mc lars podcast is back and that was a little preview of this amazing interview with Weird Science, a.k.a. Josh Eppard of Coheed and Cambria. And uh, I'm going to start each episode now with a little intro so you hear like a little window into what we're going to talk about later. So that's what's up. Thank you all for tuning in. Happy Labor Day. This is episode 101. Uh, it is September 7th, 2020. And this week's episode is brought to you by the following Patreon Larsons. Shout out to the new ones, Dean Ritz, Midlife Stasis, and Eric Rasmussen. And shout out to the old ones, Jesse Kiefer, Some Name, and Justin Lanfear. Thank you all for your support. Thank you for hanging with me through the social media break I did. I'd never done an experiment like this where I was just like, okay, I'm off for like, I was off for over a month. I was did a lot of reading. I spent a lot of time with my family. I worked on a lot of music and uh, I did a lot of podcasts. So they're kind of front loaded. I did this podcast with Josh a few weeks ago and... Um, before we get into it, I want to play this week's Letter to Atlas. And this week's Letter to Atlas is from my friend MC Snacks, who's been doing the Hatchet Chat YouTube videos with me where we review all the albums ICP put out through their label, all the artists they signed, and all the albums they released. Every other week, we have a video up. So this is a little message from my Canadian friend, Brian. Is he sleeping? Is he pooping? Just checking in. How's a little boy doing? These are some messages that you left. Wishing our little baby boy the best. Now it's time for Letters to Atlas. Please leave a message after the tone. Yo, this is um, Brian Colin from Newfoundland, Canada, and I'm actually calling uh, looking for Atlas. He was born two days ago, and of course his parents are over the moon, super happy, and uh, Atlas buddy... You're so lucky to have such cool and talented parents, and they're so lucky to have you, such a cool, healthy baby boy. I just wanted to call to welcome you to planet Earth, and uh, I hope to meet you someday, buddy. Peace. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate that, and I know Atlas will too. Our son is f over four months old now. He's growing great. He's doing great. He's uh, laughing. He's a lot of fun. So uh, shout out to Atlas for making life awesome. All right, so let's get into it. Weird science. Now, some of you may have seen Weird Science with me on tour in the UK in the spring of 2011. It was him, me, MC Chris, and Ikira the Dawn on a very, very long UK tour. And then I did the Warp Tour with Josh uh, and my friend John on drums and my friend Mike Russo on bass and guitar. And we got the Warp Tour gig because Kevin Lyman, the guy who picks all the bands, was a fan of Coheed and Cambria and Weird Science, which was Josh Eppard's side project. So let's talk about the small world stuff how small w the world is. So before I had a podcast, I had a show on Sirius XM called the MC Lars show. And it was on for a few years and people would recommend cool music. And it was interesting because it was pre social media, but I'd get emails and people would hit me up and send me stuff. And I got a request to play weird science. Now I knew Coed and Cambria because I had seen them at skate and surf. One of the first festivals I played, they, um, were one of the headliners on one of the first days. And I was very impressed by their drummer, as anyone who's seen the band knows. Josh is very technical, but energetic 
an amazing drummer. And so I was intrigued that he had a rap side project. So Friends and Nervous Breakdowns was the first album. And I remember I listened to it a ton. And um, I talk about this story on the podcast. But the day I graduated college, I went camping in Yosemite the next day with my aunt and uncle. And I had his CD. And I listened to it in the car like 20 times driving from Stanford to Yosemite. So I always associated him with this happy, victorious memory in my life. And I, I love his flow. And I love his style. And I love everything about that record. He kind of reminded me of Jamie Madrox from Twisted. Some of you might notice that like they have a similar timbre and cadence, but it's a very technical, passionate, amazing style of rapping. And so I'd play him a lot on my serious radio show years later. So he was kind of offline and hard to get a hold of because I, I always wanted to like work with him or, or reach out to him. Um, he was working on this album called Sick Kids and he had this really cool flash animation website that talked about it but he was going through some addiction stuff and he'd left coed in cambria so he was going through some hard times so he didn't put the record out but i linked with him again randomly we were at a laundromat somewhere upstate new york and uh his friend kwame who is a dude who rapped with him and worked with him um saw us with our laminates hanging out at a laundromat my band and i and he said who are you guys what band are you guys and we saw his tattoo and he was just a friendly dude. And we're like, oh, we love weird signs. And that got back to Josh. So fast forward after that, a few years after that, my friend, Mike Russo, my bass player, my guitarist used to book college shows, right? And he booked a show with Josh's other band, Terrible Things, which featured Fred from Taking Back Sunday after Fred had left Taking Back Sunday. And it, and it turned out Josh was aware of us. So one thing led to another. And my former manager, Howie, told Kevin Lyman, who runs the Warp Tour, that Josh and I were working on music together and we were thinking of going on tour as a duo. So we got the offer to play Warp Tour and um, it all came from that meeting. But meanwhile, I was trying to launch Horace Records, sign other artists and branch out like a lot of my favorite rappers had done, right? Like put out other artists, put on artists they admire. So we raised money through a Kickstarter for Josh. We got him a publicist. And it was an interesting learning experience, learning that like a lot of dealing with running a label is being on the phone with an artist manager talking about like the minutia of, oh, the tech should be this size, the, the artist wants this and that. And it became more of, ugh, it was, it was, I realized I didn't want to run a record label because it wasn't too creative it, after a certain point. But I learned a lot from Josh and he was very patient with me putting out his album. We got him some good press. We did these tours together. I went on later to do Warp Tour twice on my own without him, but we stayed in touch. We played show since and he's put out tons of music after his brief stint on Horse Records. So we talk about that more on the second episode. But anyway, this intro is long. This is my interview with Josh from Coding Cambria, aka Weird Science. I'm really glad to be back doing this podcast. Thank you all for sticking with me. The end of this episode, it kind of cuts off abruptly. And then I'm going to play... Um, how to be an indie rapper, which was our second song together, which was on Lars Attacks. So check it out. This is my interview with Weird Science. Hello, my friends. I'm here with Josh Eppard, a.k.a. Weird Science, a.k.a. drummer of Coheed and Cambria, a.k.a. the first signing that I ever had on my label <laughs> when that was a thing, a.k.a. the reason I got to play Warp Tour. And uh, Josh is a horror movie expert as well as a rapper and 
great drummer. And yeah, I thought it'd be cool if we talk a little bit about how we met and then talk a little bit about horror movies because you know a ton about that. So that's what's up. Well, I know a ton about sp- specific horror movies, but let me also just commend you on that many AKAs. I feel like all dirty. That was amazing. Yeah, man. You have, you've had a very long, interesting career and it's kind of fortuitous. We linked because my guitarist, Mike Russo, ha- had booked a show with your old band, Terrible Things, right? I believe so, but I was always aware of MC Lars. Like People would talk about you. I knew of your music and I knew there was some kind of connection it's funny as this sounds and it's like per this is not like a story that's all that unique but like a buddy of mine i think ran into you somewhere and we were always really guessed that you even knew who weird science was and that so that that news like kind of permeated through the group and we we're like oh that's so awesome so we were always like aware of you on the periphery but then yeah mike russo booked me and freddie's band uh terrible things and somehow he hooked it up that there was going to be something going on but I, I think that was pretty much the start of it and really kind of kicked off a whole section of my life, Lars. I don't want to try to get like too deep too early here, but there's a whole giant portion of my life that's really like centered around you. And and when I look back at like the trajectory of my kind of reemerging as an artist and just as a human being that can exist in this world, you have such a big piece of that, that uh, I could never properly thank you. Not that you're asking me to thank you, but I just want you to know that. And it's hugely important to me. That's awesome, man. That that means a lot, Josh. And I I remember meeting it was Kwame. We met him at a laundromat, and he had the weird science tattoo. Maybe that's that's it, dude. That's exactly. And then he came, and he was like, "Dude, I met this dude, MC Lars." And we're like, "MC Lars, MC Lars." And he's like, "Yeah, I, yeah, I think so." We're like, "For real?" And that was really exciting to us. And uh, and then we got to work together. Yeah, it's almost like destiny, you know. And that was really that was really neat. Dude, we went to Europe together. That was uh, insane. <laughs> that like, was... What an insane trip! Like. <laughs> I know. Um, oh God. We, cause we, well, here's what, here's how I found about you. I was doing a show on Sirius for a few years and I'd have fans request stuff. And I had this one fan that it was always talking about friends and nervous breakdowns. And so I bought that record. And then I, when I graduated college, I went camping with my, um, aunt and uncle in Yosemite and driving out to meet them. I played that record probably like 50 times. You know how, like when you have one CD in the car, you'll listen to it a ton. And so oh, of course I associated that moment with graduating college and the second phase in my life and it was always like interesting because you weren't super active or easy to get a hold of like in those days so it was kind of not at all dude yeah. i was basically hiding i was basically trying to <laughs> no one to get in touch with me a really great plan for an artist to just hide away but yeah no one could get but you somehow we linked up and it felt right which is really it's even wilder because I, I pretty much was hiding dude. it was a really strange time for me it's so you so if we can, if you don't mind like you were you left coheed because you had some personal stuff and i guess the story as i see it like we got on Warp Tour because Kevin Lyman was a fan of Weird Science and Howie Abrams, my former manager, was like, oh, they're doing stuff together. And Kevin was like, cool. So you, we got hired to do that gig and like it was definitely a grind, but it was definitely like opened the door for me in the Warp Tour scene. But then Coheed saw that you were um, like back doing stuff, touring, doing like really hard tour and you kind of got the invitation to rejoin the band. I don't know how much you want to speak on that, but- I think I remember that being a catalyst for your return to your first. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, I think when you say that I left Coheed, you know, the water, I left right before I was going to be fired. It was a foregone conclusion that I'd have been fired. Dude, I put those guys through. I mean, they deserve a lot of credit for keeping the friendship alive, accepting my, 
uh, apology, but I think you hit the nail on the head, dude. I, they saw from afar, they said, well, God, I mean, maybe, I mean, we're going to speak honestly here and I would expect nothing less. Junkies lie, man. Right. Every junkie's clean. Right. No, dude, I'm clean now. Do you think if I if I called them and said, hey, man, I'm clean that they'd, they'd have been like, yeah, I'm sure you're lying because that's all you've done to us for years is lie, lie, lie. So then there was no communication. And then they see not only am I out on Warp Tour with Weird Science, but I'm out there with terrible things. I'm doing two shows a day on Warp Tour. Right. You know, um, they they got word that I'm up in the morning hanging posters. Yeah. And uh, and I'm doing it, you know, and they say, wow, man, maybe it definitely had something to do with them saying like, hey, man, maybe Josh is like, you know, maybe he maybe he's earned the chance to say sorry, because honestly, I needed to, dude. I had destroyed any friendship and any semblance of trust with those guys. And I'm that's I'm willing to talk about any of it, because if you don't, you got to own up to it. Right. I mean, my life, yeah. I've been gifted a lot through honesty and if, if i had known it was that simple i'd have been honest in 2007 man but i just did it took a long time to realize that honesty could really kind of uh grant me all these things that i wanted not in a selfish way but you gotta accept responsibility and i got a chance to do that and dude warp tour with you specifically when i think of warp tour I, I mainly think of us on stage like that was kind of the main thing and i mean no disrespect to terrible things but terrible things was kind of at the end I think we knew it was the end. Andy wasn't Andy Jackson from Hot Rod Circuit. He wasn't there anymore. We're yeah. kind of, yeah, I don't want to make it sound mean, but it felt like kind of beating a dead horse. I think Fred knew it was over. So when I think of Warped Tour, I think of me and you on Warped. That was the main thing I was doing there. We were on the bus together. And, um, yeah, I, I'm for, like when I say I'm forever grateful, that's one of the many reasons, dude. I think showing... The, not just COVID, the world showing that, hey, I can still do this. I mean, that was a surreal experience because I also remember like thinking Warp Tour, oh, these are my people. And then you realize, oh, it's been five years and right. everyone's different. And I'm 30 years old and everyone has gotten even younger. Like most of the bands are like 16 years old. And, right. um, but it was awesome, dude. I'm so thankful that I got to learn on stage from you. I learned so much that I utilize to this day on that tour. I wouldn't change it for the world. And we had fun, dude. I mean, there yeah. is some, we saw some wild shit, dude. Like <laughs> blood on the dance floor playing every oh, night. That was, I never saw anything like that. God, you see all the stuff now coming out the about creepy um, stuff. Yeah. Super creepy. And I remember it. I remember, dude, but I felt like, oh, maybe I'm just old. You know what? I'm like the parent here or something, but it was a little weird. Like, yeah my man like fake jerking off on the stage and literally 12 year old girls. You know, it was a little strange for me, but I was like, ah, maybe I'm just old, you know? Um, now looking back, it's like, holy shit. Yeah, I guess it was pretty weird. And there's some, I don't want to speak on it too much, but it seems like there's some really creepy stuff going on. And, um, yeah, but I feel like that dude might get in some trouble and it seems like it might be deserved. So, well, do you see violent J from, uh, ICP put out like a hit on him on, their their social media like this is juggalo enemy number one no one treats kids like this if you see this guy give him a beat down and <laughs> i did dude. Yeah. i did yeah that shit is for real um it's crazy man fucking crazy but those guys you know for all like just in passing you know we didn't like hang super hard with them seemed like nice guys they were blowing up they had enormous crowds on that skull candy stage and it was like a real eye opener for me because I was like, whoa, this shit is crazy bad to me. I thought it was the worst shit I ever heard. But that's music, man. Yeah. That's taste. Everybody's different. And like now I, I almost get it now more than 
Like then maybe I was still existing in what I thought was the current bubble and I got like a rude awakening, but what a great learning experience. Um, and you know, again, super thankful for that, but, and I don't mean to diss anybody, dude, everybody's different. Everyone's art is, is, has as much merit as anything I've ever done. I get made fun of all the time for stuff I make. I get called all kinds of names, but if we're being honest, yeah, dude, I watched blood on the dance floor and was dumbfounded by how bad I thought it was, but whatever, that's just me. I don't matter. Um, I remember once, I think it was Oregon, they, we were playing and like some, we, you and I had some good crowds, we had some small crowds, but there was like a line, their autographed line was like in front of our, our stage so people couldn't get to it. <laughs> and so you, and so you That's sang, awesome. you sang one of their, mel like, I think their song Bewitched, you sang the melody and they looked you at you. You got me bewitched, yeah. cause I'm under your spell. And they were looking yeah, at you like not, laughing. Yeah, they were like. That, yeah, of course they're laughing. They're like, who is this old fat guy singing Blood on the Dance Floor? Then they probably loved it. I, dude, I remember that. That was insane. And, when and it, the guys the guys in the band were actually really nice dudes. Like, the guys that actually played, like, the drummer and yeah. the guitar player, they're really nice guys. Um, yeah, what a crazy experience. Dude. Just so crazy. And Yellow Wolf and, oh, and Greaves. Yeah. Big Chocolate. Dude, what a great... I mean, we've done so many tours in our lives, right? A lot of them kind of, they all blend together to, like, one memory. Warp tour, I remember so many specific things. And I think that's yeah. really important. And I think it probably speaks a lot to like how how much those memories really like matter to me. Yeah, man. And I also think like it was interesting because I was trying to wear too many hats, I feel like like we the label thing, you know, it was weird with the business because I was like, oh, well, we got to recoup this and the Kickstarter is going towards this and that. And like now if we'd done it, I would have been just like, OK, Josh, let me help you. Like you got you manage your own business. We'll split the bus costs. We'll split the fees and keep the business more transparent because like I was trying to use like the UK tour and the Kickstarter and everything as a way to like help you grow. But I didn't know all the right decisions. And like, I was as a fan, so excited for sick kids to come out, which was the, the second record, which you'd been talking about, which when Ernie played me, I was so excited to try to promote. So it was like nowadays it's, it would have been a totally different thing, but this is almost 10 years ago. Like you had a lot of faith in me. And I know like sometimes I drop the ball as like a label dude. I, do, Lars, I never, I honest to God, I hear a hundred percent where you're coming from. I don't think you dropped the ball. Your intentions were always a hundred percent pure. Drop the ball. Dude, you put yourself on the line to help me time and time again. There's no way in my heart that I harbor any, any, please take this into your heart. I don't think that at all. I'm always so, I'm really appreciative for how hard you tried. I, you know, it underwhelmed, man. It's like a fucking weird project that like, <laughs> certain people it speaks to and yeah. like if anything man i i felt bad it didn't perform better or like you know of course i wanted it to come out and wanted people to like flip out and say it was really great and i was trying to like figure out being sober or like who am i what yeah. am i you know um but dude you've only ever tried to help me and uh again that just goes back to how i mean appreciative isn't even whatever's 10 steps past appreciative i'm supposed to have this vast vocabulary i can barely speak i love you so much man no one else my whole life would be different if i didn't meet you lars so um i mean that says it right there that's nice josh thank you and it's cool that we like it's so cool like kicking off this podcast seeing how reciprocated it was because like the last thing i'll say is you know i i've i did the robot kills record which was like kind of ska pop punk record but i wanted to do more like serious 
more elaborate hip hop. And so having you on Lars Attacks was so dope. Having KRS One, having Sage Francis, like it was like three, my three, three of my favorite rappers that I'd loved for the past few years. It was like I could make a hip hop record that you helped me produce because you introduced me to people like Chris and Dave, which gave it that professional sheen. We recorded part of it at Applehead, which was a studio up in Woodstock that you hooked me up with. And it was just, it was cool to learn from you and for you to look at what I was doing, not as just like a nerdy pop punk novelty thing, which I felt like a lot of hip hop heads maybe saw me as like the nerdcore thing, which is in some ways limited. And it, it was cool to be able to grow as a rapper, learn from you and like, I remember once when we were in England, we were doing the 23 remix at a studio and um, I had a flow and I was like, oh, that's that I, I did. a I did a, a lyric where I had like a syncopated rhythm. I was like, let's retrack it. And you were like, no, Lars, that's what makes you that a good rapper. Keep those weird little inflections. So I learned from you as a MC, maybe as, as in a way you learned from me on a business tip. And so that I think was kind of like a serendipitous and like a special a special year you know yeah serendipitous is a good word for it i do there's definitely like a real two-way street going and you know it's like learning is a strange thing it's like um, i always want to be willing to learn but not everything sticks for me i've noticed this as i get older um and certain experiences just if hey if i could like you know quantify it and siphon it down i'd have everything stick but it doesn't but a lot of stuff with you, Andrew, just stuck. It stuck for I, for some reason. Like I said, if I could quantify why, I'd figure out why. I think something's going in and out. And I've taken so much from those years. Well, business, sure, but also things. You know, a lot of performance stuff. Mm. Um, things on stage. Um, I remember, like early on on Warp Tour, watching how you held a mic, and it changed how I held a mic, and all of a sudden I sounded better. And here I am, supposed to be a professional, and I'm like, oh, I guess I've been doing that wrong for 20 years. <laughs> Jesus Christmas! Like holding the mic lower. Yeah, I think yeah. it was lower, but you would angle it at certain times, and you just had a comfort level. Yeah, that I had not yet achieved. I'm a shy person, for as boisterous. I mean, that's what Weird Science was, dude. It was the opposite of me, you know. But even in songs on like that first right, like Joshua, they're laughing at you. Hey, that's not a song like a real uh, confident guy writes. I mean, I always feel like I'm getting laughed at, or you know, I feel uh, introverted. And around my friends, I can be the total opposite. And that's kind of you know, Weird Science was about that. It was kind of about, I mean, it really started to like, I wanted to be better. All the bully kids would rap, right? Like, oh, they pick on kids or assholes. And I wanted, I was like, these kids can't rap. I'll, if I'll do, I'll write one rap. It'll be better than theirs. And it was. <laughs> and I'd go and I'd rap. And that's how this whole thing started. It was like, wow. you know, um, and I still to this day, here I am, I'm 40 years old. And like, I'm so immensely proud of weird science, even though there's songs from like when I was a kid that I hear and I can totally cringe. Of course, I think that's true for any artist, but right. specifically really super true for me. Um, but like I'm the fact that it spoke to anyone and the fact that we were able to put out not just sick kids, but then three other records and we're working on a record now and that I get to do this. I really enjoy rapping and I'm like more comfortable about it right now than ever before. And I don't, I would have never got here if it wasn't for like our experience together. And just when I bring up comfort, that's something you can't really, I don't know if you can teach it. So maybe it, it, it resided in me, but like, if you were to look at the first Warped Tour show and the last Warped Tour show, I was a completely different performer. Fred told me that Fred from terrible things. That's um, tight. That's interesting. Oh, it was so tight because Fred, dude, 
Fred was a rock guy. Like, I think it was always kind of silly to Fred that I rapped. And, like, he had so come around on it. Yeah. People, like, um, I don't know, you kind of get goofed on. You know what I'm saying, right? Like, people are like, oh, you rap? Oh, God, cool, man. And it's like, oh, well, I don't know. I'm just trying to – it spoke to me, and I, and I make this kind of music. Yeah, what's the problem? Like, um, but to see, like, Fred and – Fred's wife even came, and she's like, dude, you're, like, a completely different performer. And I really owe that all to you, Lars. I basically was just copying you from the way you walk to the way you talked in between songs. That was something I didn't possess, Um and I just learned, I came so far in such a short time. I mean, Warped Tour feels real long when you're on it, but in the grand scheme of things, it's a pretty short run, you know, to learn that much. Um, shit, I wish we could do another Warped Tour, yeah, all know, this Warped Tour right? talk. Man, it's making me miss it. <laughs> it was, and you know what, it was like talking about, so ICP, like in their book, Violin J talks about this concept of Lienda, which is all or nothing, which talks about when they started Psychopathic Records. So this is the last time I'll reference them, but like they've been on my mind recently and he talks about it's all or nothing right and that summer before like you're with me when we were in england on this long tour people usually do england for a week we were there for like a month as a yeah. warm-up i broke up with this person that i was like felt like i thought i was gonna marry and like it was just very emotional i was going through a lot personally i was trying to like not let it affect the business but because of that it was all or nothing like our warp tour experience from the postering to the networking, to the show, to the rehearsals, it had to be, it, it couldn't fail. And so I think we both came at it with that energy. And I want to shout out Mike and John because they're just such a great rhythm section. Like having a live band, man, gave, oh, gave, gave us time, the confidence. Dude. Like they killed it. Yeah. yeah. And lifelong friends, dude. I, I count Mike and John as two of my close friends. I love those guys. They worked um, hard, and, man. And they're, yeah. yeah, they worked hard and they loved you. And I mean, I, I couldn't love Mike Russo and John. I could not love those guys anymore. I love them so much. And you know, from experience, not everyone you tour with becomes a lifelong friend, right. <laughs> but Mike and John are lifelong friends, dude. Not just friends with me. Ernie's good friends with John. Yeah. Somehow John's friends with like half my crew from Kingston. He's just such a likable guy. Everybody knows John Longley. Everybody fucking knows John. Um, yeah, so again, thankful for that. I love those guys dearly. And they busted their asses and killed it every night. I know. And also, and so it's like being in a, it's interesting. Like if you're part of a band, like maybe you can speak on this in a minute. Like um, if you're a drummer for like a, an amazing band like you are. And um, the first time I saw you play was at Skate and Surf. I was hanging out with the brand new guys because I was working with their manager. And we watched from side stage and watch you drum. I was like, this this band's power in a lot of way comes from the like intricate focused drumming. And I think that's something that like has always been true about Coheed. But um, John and I would watch the Coheed DVDs like early in our career and like looking at you as a rapper, you can see how there's similar things with syncopation and rhythm. But as a rapper having a band, the band doesn't get as much props as if you are like, like, a band like The Roots or Coheed, where all the musicians have an identity. Being a backup band for a solo artist, I think in some ways can be a hard gig. Hell yes, so, dude. Hell yes. Yeah. So like John, John would always talk about how he appreciated that you'd give him tips and tricks and show him stuff. And like, I think it was a good learning experience from them. But to do that, they had a lot of humility, you know, and big time, dude. It's yeah. tough, man. You know, yeah. no one, no one is a kid like practicing. Uh, in their garage, imagining getting passed over for an autograph. You know, no no kid is like in their basement, like that's imagining sad. getting shoved out of the way at the meet and greet so they can talk to the singer. <laughs> and, you know, that's a part of like, you know, 
a lot of musicians are kind of shy and it's funny yeah. that we're like immersed in this world with people that are the opposite of shy, which are frontmen. You get a guy like Claudio from Coheed who is like immensely shy in his real life. That's not an act. My man is shy, but like, just like weird science, like him on stage with a guitar strapped around him. That's the opposite of Claudio Sanchez. That's this other thing. Hmm. But like he had something that I didn't really have. Like I was too, uh, let's call a spade a spade. I was too afraid, man. I was afraid to stand in front. I give a lot of credit to anybody, but that does have the courage to do that. But a lot of, in my experience, a lot of the players, the guitar players, the drummers, the bass players, they feel the calling to play music, but they just didn't have that thing where it's like, I've got to be in front. And then, you know, you, what comes along with it is some of those moments. Dude, I've had my heart like broken. You know, it's like, I wanted to play drums in a band. Hey, last I checked, man, my favorite bands all had drummers, you know? I didn't realize that, like, sometimes you're made to feel like an inch tall. And this actually happened at a show, and a guy, um, we're taking our meet and greet picture, and it's like, fair enough, dude. Like, Coheed fans are, I hate to sound so cliche, but, like, they really are the best fans in the world, by and large. They're smart, creative, funny people, and I count scores of them as, like, real, lifelong friends now. Um, but then you get some fans that they just want to take a picture with Claudio and that's fine. That's fair enough, dude. I'm not, I don't want to shove my, I don't have to be in the picture or whatever, but a guy literally shoved me out of the way. And then I never felt smaller than as I inched back into the picture, like I didn't really want to, it was like almost a force of like, this is what we do. We take the picture. Yeah. The, my man pushed me. He's drunk. I'm sure he had a big beers, big guy, he had a Jersey on and, He's there like showing off with his lady and they, they get right in the middle and he shoves me out of the way and no one like really said anything. And, but I just, that was probably the smallest I ever felt as I inch back up to the picture, but I didn't want to touch him. So I like stayed a good, like few inches away from him. And I'm, I'm like in the picture, all like trying to smile, but I really, I wanted to cry. It was like, damn dude, that's hard. You hate me so much. You want to shove me out of the way. And, um, uh, then I was a little upset, maybe not rightfully so, but I, I, you know, I wish some of the guys from the band or the crew or the tour manager, anybody was like, Hey, you don't get to push the band members. Yeah. Yeah. No yeah. One, I, no one saw it really is what happened, but yeah, I was a little upset about it. And then I, I had this bit that I would do. I'd say, why do I have to be made to felt like, feel like that? I want to come here and give a hundred percent of my energy on stage for the people that give a shit. If this guy's going to push me, like, why do I have to be out here? And then I was like, ah, I'll just stop being a baby. And that only happened once. So this is out of however many thousands of like pictures we've taken at the meet and greet. But it was brutal. And it is just part of this business. Not everybody is the star. And for somebody like me, you know, you'd better get used to it quick because you're in a band with like a bona fide rock star. So um, I always looked at it on the flip side of that as it being really professional and something that I was proud of that we didn't let like such earth, earthly things as like jealousy um, kind of get in the way. Lord knows early Coheed, we had every other problem, but like I understood that Claude was kind of like a force to be reckoned with. He was my favorite front man. I wanted to, I was a fan first. We would play shows together and we would open up for each other's bands. Like we would go down to Nyack and play and open up for them. They'd come up to Kingston and they'd open up for my band. And um, I wanted to be a part of his universe. So I knew what I was getting into, but yeah, humility is something that, you know, we're all, right? We all are human. We all have feelings. And sometimes it can be really tough. Mm. And giving John and Mike credit is, it just shows what a good guy you are, Lars, honestly, man. Because 
I don't think a lot of people would even take the time to do that. And I think that that's really special and speaks to how unique and um, thoughtful of a guy you are. But Thanks, John man. and Mike certainly deserve tons of credit because hell yeah, anybody in a backup man. Hey, anybody listening to this show, the backup band, some love. Those guys are up. No one's busting their ass harder than the drummer. I'll tell you that right now. My <laughs> right. man is working. <laughs> show him some love. It'll make his day. Yeah. You're the one person that's like, Hey man, great show. Can I get a picture? They'll love you for life. Right. <laughs> well, and also it's interesting to see how John, like both those guys, I did songs about kind of ribbing them. I don't know if you've known, like the clean up your of house. Of course, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and they both took it in stride, but you know, it was a little, I don't know, it's like hazing in a way, but um, they both then have developed their own fans. Like Mike Russo, when he'd be CC'd on emails, when he'd be tour managing, opening bands would be like, hey, Mike Russo, did you cut your hair? Like he has his own little, like. Oh, totally, dude. Yeah. <laughs> and, they, and, believe, and believe me, they love it. <laughs> they love it so and they should dude that's awesome i mean yeah. that's just one of those which i mean you bring we could speak about it in like terms of like this very small world of the large world but like in general backup bands and whatnot and it is those are some of the things like i at least i didn't think about it when i was practicing in the garage all my favorite bands i knew the names of the drummers you know the world kind of changed too in like terms of bands like a lot of people don't know the names of everybody in the band and that's fine that's just kind of the way it is um you know, I can live with that. I'm probably more, hey, man, you know, Claudio being such a shy guy, he doesn't always want to take pictures and do all that stuff. And, like, I kind of have the best of both worlds because I get a lot of love being in Coed and Cambria. Like, I don't normally get pushed out of pictures, you know. I look out in the crowd and I see signs of, Josh, we love you. And I get I get enough love that it's good, but I don't get, like, overwhelmed. So I almost, like, feel like I beat the system. It's, like, the perfect balance right. of <laughs> attention versus, like, not over too much attention. So don't take it as I'm complaining. But there were definitely times where you had to um, just be aware that, like, you know, stardom creates a shadow and you might have to live in it. But you're expected to work just as hard and uh, you're expected to sacrifice and, and put it all out there. Um and I looked at it as professional. I always took that as professional to be able to kind of absorb that and weather that and still bring your A game and not get, because it destroys tons of bands. It destroys tons of bands. Sure. You know, the bass player figures out like, wait a second, I'm not the star. I was the popular one in high school. What, what, this isn't my band. Fuck this. I'm out of here. Pardon my crass language. <laughs> yeah. um, or I wrote the hit song. So blah, blah, blah. Like the dead milkman. It's a good example. Like their punk rock girl song, uh, Joe Jack sings, but Rodney kind of started the band, so it was like weird for them. But they've um, maintained and done, you know, done okay, and they get along. They, I've interviewed both of them, and they talked about that. And that that's a weird thing. Like certain songs, someone might know feature a member that aren't like the rest of the band's catalog. You know? Yeah, dude, totally. And all of it, all of it comes down to like communication. And if you don't have communication, you're not going to be able to weather those storms. But there's a lot of stuff that comes up. You're talking about art. It's really easy to think of art as just like, oh, yeah, man, we all get together and create. But, that, you know, there's feelings involved and there's egos and there's personalities and all that stuff is like, you know, burned down many a band. I feel pretty like proud that Coheed is it because Lord knows we had problems. You know, we were able, I'm still standing here at 40 years old in my band that I was in when I was 19. And I'm pretty proud of that. I'm seriously proud of that. Beyond pretty proud of that. I'm really, really um I think we kind of hang our hat on that and take a lot of pride. So, yeah, I mean, and also, so Josh, that's, 
that's awesome that you guys have had that longevity. You said something that made me think about our n- next topic. Um, so Claudio, you talked about how he'd stand on stage and that his acts kind of become m- makes him a superhero. And I think about that, and I think about the Weird Science brand, and I think about how sometimes you know it's like this dichotomy of the shy, lonely, introverted artist who then gets on stage and you are given like this Spider-Man suit, this Tony Stark suit, and <laughs> When that ha- is punctured or like you're pushed out of the way or like a show, you know, your show doesn't draw as well or whatever, like that can be very disheartening because it can kind of somehow puncture this illusion like Plato's allegory of the cave, like the shadows fl- flickering on the back of the wall can get covered up and that's really disorienting. And I think about it in terms of like how it's kind of, it can feel unjust and feel random and feel unfair and, and the terms of sick kids record that record i felt like was like a platinum sounding record it had so much heart great hooks but it's like we both learned that sometimes you make the best record you can you're not gonna instantly be five mics in the source you know and it's like (laughs) and that can be that could be disheartening because it like the illusion is something that sometimes feels very mercurial and you know what i mean of course lars of course dude i mean we all know somebody that's like yeah, I mean, yeah. It, for me, what it what it it forced me to re- kind of whittle down why I really do this, and it never started to be a star. It truly didn't. I think a lot of people that might be the main motivation, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But for me, it really was about expressing things um, that were kind of locked inside that I needed to express. Uh, and it felt good to do that. You know, when you come alive, when a song comes together, I mean, there's your hair stands up and, um, that's why I did it. And cause we all know somebody that's immensely talented that just, it didn't line up for them. There's so much luck involved. There's so many, I mean, as well as hard work, sacrifice, all those things, but then also there's like no rhyme or reason to it. And you can make a record that is incredible. It hits all the notches, right? Scratches all the itches. I mean, there's been, dude, let me tell you when, when Coheed signed to Sony, I had already been on a major label, but not in this capacity. Like we had juice, like every label was trying to sign us. So it was, you know, when I signed to universal as a kid with my other band, we were lucky to be signed. There was no other labels really with Coheed. It was a different experience and they were not in a bad way, but they're kind of trying to show off and they let us go through their catalogs to take all the records we wanted, you know, back when people had CDs still. And like, I'd have to dig through 150 records to even find one that I heard of. Oh, wow. And it dawned on me just how much stuff they put out that never makes a mark. And then I'm thinking like they spend millions on market recent. This is back when labels have too much. They don't even know what to do with all the money. Um, Well, actually when Coheed signed, it was kind of the, the last little bit of that. Because this wasn't like the 80s or the 90s, but um, they spend all this money on market research and they have this record uh, production wise. It, it's it's there. It's got the hooks, but it just doesn't stick. In fact, Doug Morris, the president of Universal, not with Coheed, with my other band as a kid, that's what he told me. 16, 17 year old kid, he told me, he said, you know, we spend all this money on market research. I should have led with this story. but um and he said, at the end of the day, we throw it against the wall and some shit sticks and some shit doesn't. And it's like, oh, my God, I've dedicated my whole life to this thing. There's no rhyme or reason to it. And, you know, with Sick Kids not like performing the way it was now, I wouldn't change it for anything. But, you know, it was a hard lesson to learn. 
and all careers kind of ebb and flow. Like you had brought right. a, a show doesn't draw like it did. They said, God, last time we were here, there was 5,000 people. Now there's only three. It's like, Hey bonehead, there's 3000 people here. Shut up. You know, it's like anybody that gets to do this is lucky. And I, I know that that took, that took, a, I wouldn't be able to say that at 25, you know, at 25, I was probably took a lot of this for granted. Um, had the nerve to complain. I want to go home. I'm tired. I want to go home. And it's like, now I see just how lucky I am that I get to do this. Cause, and it's because I've seen so many people that deserve this. that didn't get it. Um, I know people that are so talented and it just didn't line up that luck, that stroke of luck didn't befall them. Um, and it can be heartbreaking, but, uh, I guess it's just like the way of the world and this business yeah. of show that we find ourselves in. Well, or also Josh, at this point, like we're both in this club of people who've been doing this for 20 years plus and totally. th there's people who, ha who have had this success but it didn't last more than a year or two and they all so that is something I get more and more grateful for every year as Nerdcore has continued to be this like underground thing that people keep finding out about and we're in this position where because we friend a lot says this a lot and I think it's funny because we were never cool or never really mainstream in any way we never became uncool <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that dude. Frontalot is such, he seems like such a dope dude. I've had like brief interactions with him, like on Twitter and whatnot, but he seems awesome dude. And like his music is bananas dude. Like he's such a talented dude. Like I love that guy. I don't think he realizes what a big fan I am of his. Um, that's it. Yeah, man. I mean, and Coheed kind of fall dude. Coheed had a moment where it was like all the big label guys were coming around and, like it wasn't unheard of to think like, Oh, maybe they'll be the next big band. And I say, thank God it didn't happen. You know, it's like, we got plenty big dude. Like we've, we sold like 6 million records altogether. It's like, Oh my God. But imagine like if it had broke it's pretty big though, Josh, that's pretty huge. No, 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 no. I'm just, but Hey, there's a difference between, um, Hey man, every time I leave the house and somebody asks me what band I'm in, where I live in Glenmont, New York, I say, Oh, it's a band called Coheed and Cambria. And they're like, who? What? And then they tell me, you got to come and play my uncle's bar over in Riverdale. You're going to love it. Dude. And I'm like, and then how do you like say like, well, I, cause I do have some pride, you know, it's like, I, well, you know, we normally, I don't know, man, you know, I usually just try to keep it pretty cool, but no, dude, that is huge. That's bigger than I could have ever really realistically dreamed. Right. Don't get me wrong. Oh my God. It's big. But I just mean, imagine if it broke in a way that like, I don't know, like the big, big guy, Fallout Boy. I mean, clearly there's a different My Chemical Romance, you know, Panic at the Disco even. Who, like, dude, I went to see Panic at the Disco last year in Albany on a Tuesday night, sold out, 17,000 people. I mean, real. My man flew over the crowd in a piano, dude. He flew. I thought I was at an Elton John show. It's like one of the best shows I've ever seen. Yeah. And I was just floored. Um, yeah. I just mean, if it had, I, get, I have this feeling that on another plane of existence, Coheed might have broken like that. And now I drive for UPS or I work at the post office. I do something else. Because if it had become that thing, that super cool thing, not this kind of personal, because we share a connection with the fans that I think is really unique. And uh, I think it's the reason that we're a band. I think like through all the ups and downs and all the bullshit that exchange of energy of when we're on stage it means so much to us and i know it means a lot to them and it's something it's hard to articulate i've been trying for years and i always goof it up but it's something special i know that that's what i know that's really special 
and really, really powerful. And I'm so thankful that we didn't become that band that got that big. And I just have a feeling it'd be over if it was. It would have been discarded like so many things are. Even though every band I brought up is still killing it to this day. Like my camp just got back together and Fallout Boy and Panic. But I'm just thankful that it never kind of moved past whatever that needle mark is, right? Uh, to whatever big is. Because I don't want to make it sound, I mean, please let me be clear. Coheed has achieved things that in my wildest dreams I could not have been like prepared for or ever really thought would happen. But, you know, that upper echelon, I'm thankful that it didn't hit that because I have a feeling it would be over for us. I mean, dude, I see bands that were like enormous, bigger than Coheed by far that, you know, they go out on tour and do their 10 year anniversary or whatever. And there's 200 people there. And it's like, wow, like this meant something to people. And then it was just discarded. And that's a scary notion, man. That's like, holy shit. Um, and then it makes me think, how lucky are we that we're still here? I'm 40 years old. And we had our best, we had our biggest year touring ticket sales wise in 2018. You know, last year on the headliner with Mastodon, it was like, holy shit, we're like comfortably in these amphitheaters. This is crazy. We both found ourselves in this pocket of, uh, it's like millennial nostalgia, right? It's like looking back at a world before this. Totally. Before everything went crazy. And so people, and so it's kind of cool to be associated with the first decade of this century in a way. Don't you think so? Yeah, dude. And also like the fact that we've survived long enough that we can reap the benefits of nostalgia. Right. I'll take that. that <laughs> right. I'm proud of that, dude. Like, <laughs> um, like there's no question. We did a tour with Taking Back Sunday. It was a co-headliner in 2018. I pushed for the tour hard. You know why? Because I'm a huge fan of Taking Back Sunday. I really love the band. I like the guys a lot. Um, no one could have been prepared for like, how successful the tour was. I mean, this is what I mean. Coheed is not used to playing to 11,000 people. We had like four or five shows that drew over 10,000 people, but we tapped into the nostalgia. Like I talked to people and they'd be like, dude, haven't been to a show in four years. I had to come out for this one. And I was like, well, that's that's awesome. We've been around long enough that we can like, be part of that thing where oh, I remember this from high school. I love that. Again, to me, it's like a point yeah. of pride. Surviving in this business is almost impossible. It's almost impossible. I can't believe here me and you are all these years later. Did you really think? Maybe you did, dude. My life was in such like disarray when we were on Warp Tour. It makes me giddy to think that we're standing here <laughs> a decade later talking about still doing our thing, man. Yeah, it's tough. Come on, Lars. That is the best, dude. <laughs> well, Even if it all yeah. ends right now, we did it, dude. We did it. And, you, you know, man, carved out something for ourselves with art. And I'm, I'm proud of you. I know you're proud of me. I'm proud of us. I think it's really incredible. Yeah, man. I agree, Josh. And I think the other cool thing is the, ins the inspiration that we can then pass on to the younger kids who see this like way you and I amalgamated and did interesting things with hip hop and you with, with different metal and rock stuff, like being able to think about how we both have made unorthodox non-commercial music in a way that kind of found a market. I mean, I, I say that in, in a, in a good way, right? Like unique totally, music yeah. and, and to be able to, I think being original is important and I'm not just trying to make us both feel like awesome, but like, being original is is important, and we both Hell yes, that. It's yeah. important. Yeah, man, and you know, it's like being original is also. I mean, it's hard in a way, but it's also not like I remember making my first record. And I was impressionable, man. Like that record came out in 05, but dude, a lot of that stuff was recorded in like two thousand one. I mean, wow. Um, 
Yeah, and I was like really uh, looking up to the people that I was around, you know, like I, I was finally being taken seriously. For years, I would say like, no, I'm a rapper. And it'd be like, All right. you know, I come to the session and hang out for nine hours hoping to get a four bar part. Let me prove myself. And it just would never happen. I'd come again the next time I'm sitting there. Everybody's just smoking weed for hours. And, and so am I. I'm not going to, you know, I'm hanging out, but like never get that chance. And then all of a sudden, like these people were like, hey, you know what? You're all right. We're going to get in the studio with you. And, you know, I was definitely pushed to sound kind of like what was popular, which was like kind of Dre E beats, but like with an Eminem thing, which wasn't hard for me. Like I was a huge Eminem fan. Um, but like I there's so much more it's so much more gratifying and scary. It's gratifying and terrifying. It's all the fines. Every fine you can think of, it's all um, to be original. And I didn't. I kind of had to learn that. I learned a little bit of that on Friends and Nervous Breakdowns. I learned a lot of that on Sick Kids. And it's something I carry with me to this day. And of course, it's important, Lars. Um, it's so important to be original, man. I think uh, I think kids are original, dude. I think the reason like my old ass hears some things and is like, what the fuck is this? Is because it's original. Right, right. And it's not for me. And I tried, Ernie is good at like teaching me. Dude, like Ernie is forever 21 dude he is he's that store he's that clothing store he's just like he understands man like hey i'm getting old and that's why this shit doesn't make sense to me let me take a step back let me try to like listen to this and imagine like who it's speaking to and like who it's it's for kids man it's for young people and young people are filled with you know the things that i hate to say they start to die down like i you know i'm 40 years old i'm trying to hang on to some of my piss and vinegar i'm trying to hang on to some of my you know, whatever, those things that fire inside you. But sometimes I just want to go to bed, man, because I'm 40, dog. I'm tired. <laughs> um, but Ernie, I've learned so much from Ern, too, man. I mean, he's, he's such a good guy. I'm speaking of uh, DJ Dirty Ern, who's well-known in the Coheed community. And just uh, he has a podcast called Table Scraps uh, with a buddy of his, Teddy. They do a clothing comp, all kinds of stuff. Um but yeah, he's been, he's turned me onto a lot of young music and I don't know, it kind of landed for me that it's not necessarily, it's not, not for me, but this is for kids. And that's who I, that's who I was speaking to when I was that age, when I was 20 years old writing music, it was for people my age going through similar experiences to me. And I was like, I wasn't thinking about, mm, I wonder what my dad's friends are going to think of this song. No, of course not. Um, right. And I think kids are original and you know, it's like blood on the dance floor, dude. When I was watching that stuff, that's what I thought. And like, I hate to keep bringing them up, but that I was like, oh, I must be too old for this. Um, and that, that was original. It was crazy, but it was pretty original. But I, there's some things that have come out that have been like, um, who's that dude, Juice World? Like some of that stuff I thought is really good. And yeah. I was around some older people my age and they were like, oh man, he just stole this song. And I was like, ew, dude. Listen to yourself. He just stole. You're talking about the same sampling techniques that are on our favorite records. What are you talking about? Right, like, right. And uh, but, uh, you know, to each their own. But I believe in the kids, man. I'm always going to believe. I remember Tom York said years ago, he said, um, I'm not excited about what Radiohead's going to do next. I'm excited about what some 15 year old kid is doing in his bedroom right now and what he's going to put out like. Um, that sounded more sexually suggestive than I meant it. He meant music wise, like what some 15 year old kid is creating right now and what he's going to put out. And that's like a sentiment I really embody. Like I'm excited to see what kids are going to come out with, where the next music wave goes, where it takes us. And I think that's just like a more positive place to exist than 
I don't know, the old bitter curmudgeon. Everything sucks. That's I don't want to be that guy. I'm not going to be that guy. There's always something that can speak to you out there. And um, sometimes I got to do some digging, but uh, I always seem to find it. And I think there's a lot of originality with the kids, a lot. Well, and w- when you become that person who's like, oh, hip-hop stopped being good in 95, blah, blah, blah. Then you don't want to make music anymore, and then you kind of give up. Like, it's your life force. I think you have to always be open to it, and you have to be honest if you if you don't like it. But yeah, I, tr- I try to stay up on that stuff, too. I read this interesting article about how the SoundCloud mumble rap thing that started a few years ago, because it's not so concise and distinct and more emotional and more kind of um vague it has the same resonance that when nirvana came out where with kurt cobain you couldn't really understand every lyric but you got the vibe and that was like a backlash to the 80s hair metal stuff so like this has kind of been a backlash to like the super lyrical clear eminem era of rap right that it's more about the emotion and kind of fungible like beats and everything and that that is like what happens with music. And I think that's interesting. Yeah, dude. I think that's super interesting. And I dig it, dude. I mean, like, you know, when Nirvana came out, you had like this band down the street from me would tell us kids that Nirvana sucked because Kirk didn't play good solos. Wow. It's like, that's what you take away from that song that like, yeah, like that song that just like instantly burrowed into my heart. So I, when I watched smells like teen spirit, I'm like a kid and it came on MTV I knew I'd never forget that song and I knew I had to hear it again. And then the guy from the band, the metal band down the street, I couldn't believe he didn't like it. We ran up to him like, have you heard this? He's like, that guy sucks. He can't even play a solo. And I was just like, ew, dude, I'm so glad that happened because it was a real like teaching moment now looking back later in life, you know, but you bring up such an interesting point, dude. Like if everything is kind of like cyclical, but it all answers itself in a way. And if, you know, if that, yeah, if it's that, if that's kind of the answer to super technical, ultra lyrical, well, I kind of dig that, especially when you liken it to a Nirvana um, or something like that, that the vibe and the energy was uh, more importance was kind of placed on that. Now, don't get me wrong, dude. Like I don't like every SoundCloud rap. Most of the new stuff I hear, I don't like, I mean, I'm pretty picky about this stuff. I can be a bit of a snob, but there's some shit that I've heard that's like, whoa, this is like impact. You know, a melody catches you. Melody could go by 10 people, not one person. It doesn't. But the one person it catches, it's like it's powerful, man. It's like, I mean, that's why we do this. That's why I do this, that feeling. And that's happened with some new artists. And, um, you know, I'm into it. But who knows what in five years? I mean, things are moving so fast. Yeah. In five years, it could be something totally different. We're back to like ultra lyrical. I mean, picture somebody even like in 2010, was it like Flowrider? That straight pop star, but that stuff was all like super, like cadence wise, like very technical. It was all like very, um, all the cadences were very uh, melodic in yeah. their rhythms and whatnot. And now it's like we get the total opposite of that. And it's on one hand, I do hear some mumble rappers where I'm like, oh man, rappers nowadays, they don't even need to have rhythm. Like there's no even rhythm to it at all. But maybe it, God, thinking about it, it's a neat thought experiment to kind of imagine it with your words running through my head. Like, oh, maybe this is the answer to something. And, um, or perhaps it's not. And maybe the guy really has no rhythm and he sucks. That's fine. If it speaks to people, it speaks to people. If anyone finds an audience, I say more power to them, you know? Um, yeah. If, if you speak to people and it resonates, go get a kid, you know? Well, and also the, 
the other thing is heroin, right? Like that was a big part of Nirvana and a big part of the SoundCloud, like the the horrible epidemic with the um totally pills. Dude, yeah. So it's interesting, man. Um, I wanted also to to as the last topic, we were texting about this, and I want to end the last few minutes of our interview talking about this. I know that you are a big fan of Friday the 13th as a franchise. Is that correct? Oh, big time. Oh, yeah, of course. And I, you've used like the Jason mask in some of your merch. Is that true? Is there? Like oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Jason mask. We've used um, – I did a show on Halloween one year, and we took the poster from Halloween, and we did these shirts, and it was such a thrill for us, dude. Like Weird Science isn't big enough. We don't do giant runs of shirts, but they sold right out. And it was the night he came home, which is like the tagline yeah. for Halloween. That's so tight. we did a Jason one where it's Jason with, with the big nerdy glasses. And we did a Freddy one where it's my face on Freddy. What a thrill for me. Those shirts live in my closet. I'll never get rid of them. I sometimes pull them out and look at them because it's just so thrilling to me. But, you know, I'm a giant horror fan, but sometimes I get into talks with people that are like, big time underground horror fans and they're bringing up shit that i never even heard of but yeah these are like the pillars of like 80s horror taste elm street michael myers jason and yeah i know way too much about this stuff i mean this stuff was hugely important to me as a kid it was music and horror movies that's what it was for me as a kid growing up so yeah i'm a big fan well, it's interesting researching. I watched it the other day, and I was I learned that I was like kept expecting him to jump out with the mask. You don't see the mask as a reference to him until the third one, right? No, it's the third one, and it's like forty five minutes into the third one, dude. They don't even come out of the gate with the mask. That's why people get confused. I think Halloween had already presented the kind of faceless white mask right now if you were to look at the dates you'd be like oh no friday the 13th came out long before halloween but no dude they totally kind of bit halloween now i wasn't really like a conscious being you know, i was like four years old at this time so i don't i don't remember like as it happened but that's what i gather um god yeah. i hate to be wrong right now you fans would kill me my fans would kill me um but i always took it as halloween had kind of you know burst out of the gate with this kind of soulless white mask. And then Friday the 13th said, oh, well, well, that's great. We'll do that. If you learn a lot about the Friday the 13th movies, I think the people that make them didn't, I think sometimes they just didn't take them all that seriously. And like, I think they were like, oh, throw this mask on them. And then it became totally iconic. And it's like, uh, there's this great uh, interview with the director of Jason Goes to Hell, which is technically it's Friday the 13th part nine. But after part eight, Paramount sold it to New Line Cinema. Now, New Line, famous for uh, working with Wes Craven and putting out the Nightmare on Elm Street. So now Freddie and Jason were under the same production house. And their first movie was Jason Goes to Hell. The often maligned, fans hate it. It's one of my favorite ones. I have a very, I won't bore you with the details, but like a very specific like things that happened and kind of fell in place of why I love that movie so much. They tried to do something completely different, but Sean Cunningham, who was the producer of the original Friday the 13th, he had one direct order to the director, the director, Adam Marcus, who mind you had directed a music video and that's it had no movies under his belt. This was his first movie. This like to him, huge budget horror movie. But Sean Cunningham said, get that damn mask out of my movie. If you wanted the podcast to go on for another four hours, this is what you do. You just bring up Jason and just go put the phone down and I'll just go for hours because <laughs> I love this stuff, dude. I really do. I just as a kid, man, like I just sit there and read about it all the time. And 
um, I don't know why. Nothing covered in Jason Voorhees tattoo. It like spoke to me. And it's weirdly like kids weren't into it as much as me and my friends, like the kids on the playground and stuff. And like, you know, the popular kids or the kids doing the picking on, they weren't really into it like us. So it felt like ours, you know? And like, this was the shit we were into. And the girls big, like, you guys are weird. And it made us only want to dive in further, you know, and get into more horror movies and then started watching like some underground stuff. And yeah, it's just something that speaks to me and it's in there forever, dude. I mean, they have a fan forever. I have a room in my house just littered with like expensive busts of like, you know, Jason Voorhees from seven and nine. And I have, I don't know, 28 masks. And there's people with collections that'll blow your mind. Mine's not one of those, but you know, for a guy that doesn't have a whole lot of expendable income, I'm always excited to plop down 1200 bucks on a big giant life-size Jason that can just hang out in my house. My wife and daughter, not as psyched as me, but I love it. I really love it. Well, okay. So Jason's origin story, he, it's interesting watching the first movie because the mom is doing, you don't know if who's doing the murders and the scene at the, like spoiler alert, anyone, anyone who doesn't know, hasn't seen it, we're going to spoil a lot of the plot right here. So the girl who survives, she gets pulled off from the boat into the water, right? And then you don't know if it's a dream or not. But then you realize the cops talking about it. You realize it might. It probably wasn't a dream. So the question becomes: Was it the mom trying to avenge her son's death because of the irresponsible counselors, or was it Jason doing most of the murders? Is there a theory on this? No, dude. And you bring up an interesting point. I mean, I think so. The story is a bit like ominous, dude. I think you know they had this cheap horror movie that ended up being a monster hit. And they said, Oh shit, we got to make a part two. We've got to make a part two. It made so much money. I, I saw that it like made like 10, 20 times its budget. Yeah. And they just, they had to keep it going. So the mom was taking revenge for Jason dying. But if Jason jumped out of the lake, then Jason never really died. So I don't, I, you bring up a really interesting point, but so the story goes as the movies progress that Jason actually saw his mother be beheaded um okay how was he out there living i don't know he, he was apparently just became like a feral water monster or something he's just hanging out there in the lake um i had this like idea for like a jason movie in the modern era where they actually uh they found the bones of young jason and they realized it was actually never jason Voorhees doing oh, the sad. killing it was some demon but like the the pain that Jason had endured is what awoke this demon. And that's why it answers to the name Jason. I don't know. I thought it could be cool. Maybe really the fans would probably hate it. I think the fans just want like kids go to the camp and get fucking bludgeoned. And, um, but I thought something <laughs> like that would be cool, but God, dude, it's a really interesting, again, like a thought experiment to kind of go through how this franchise, because yeah, the mask, the iconic mask, not even a part of it till part three. How strange, right? It's like so synonymous with the series. But right. It's not even part of it. Two full movies, like, oh, oh, yeah, two and a half full movies, excuse me. Because in part two, Jason wears a pillowcase. And he's very much human in part two. Like, he's not, you know, he's deformed uh -huh. and he's feral. But, like, the, a cop is, like, looking through the woods and goes into this shack. And you see Jason has a bathroom. He eats food. You know, he wears his overalls. He had to button his over. Like, he's way more human. Same thing is true in part three. I would argue that Jason, he is undead. He's undead-ish in four because at the end of part three, you know, he gets he gets an axe. He gets hung. This guy's dead, right? There's a bunch of cops that come in the beginning of four. They, they take him off to the hospital. 
uh, I would think one of those EMS guys took a look for a heartbeat, one of the doctors or something. <laughs> so he's technically undead, but he's not truly, not truly undead, zombified Jason till part six. So he uh, becomes a zombie eventually. Oh, complete zombie. Dude, Jason lives, which is part six. So again, Lars, you're going to have all this spoiled for you. Um, part five, he's not in. Part five is called A New Beginning. Again, just another like really... I, I don't know, misguided attempt by the producers and the people in charge to try to get Jason out of their movies. Like they hate Jason, but that's what the fans want. He's not in it. What's the movie about? Is it, he not in it in that, like he's not in the first one it's shot from his angle or he's not in it at all. Oh, he's not in it. It's a different killer. Now, what? Tommy Jarvis. Yeah. It's, it, that's why it's called a new beginning. It turns out there's, um, in part four, uh, what is it? Corey Feldman is in it. Um, Oh God, I always get, yeah, it's Corey Feldman. Um, and he's great. Part four was incredible. Part four is like the benchmark early Friday movie. That's incredible. I mean, part two is really great too. Um, like three is actually the one of my least record. Favorite. It took, the yeah, dude, that's four. <laughs> yeah. Which is actually our third coheed record, but I oh, know what you mean. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know let's make it just extra confusing. Um, so yeah, part four was called the final chapter. This was supposed to be the last one. We kept hearing that, but so, and they technically they kill Jason and that Corey Feldman, uh, who's a young, he's a young kid at the time. He was great in it. And Jason looked just Tom Savini, I believe did like the, uh, the effects and stuff. And there's, there's this powerful scene where like the machete hits his head and he falls down. I mean, the stuff looked incredible. I mean, obviously it's all practical. This is the eighties, but this is a great one, but it followed the same along the same lines, you know, kids at a camp. And although it opened up in a hospital, that was different. Jason's in a hospital and he kind of makes his way out of there. That's when you say, that's when I, as a kid said like, Oh, he's unkillable. And you kind of knew that, but like he still, he would, he would bleed when you hit him. You know, if you, if you were to shoot him, it would hurt him. Like there'd be blood and stuff. And he also Lars ran. He ran in one, two, three, and four. Like it's the slow walking Jason as you run and can't escape did not fully happen until part six. And longtime wow. fans of the series will argue this with me. And I'll go to the game. I'll go to the tape and we can talk about it. We can see he runs in every single, well, he's not in one, but in two, three, and four, he runs. In six is when it really started. The walking, the kind of yeah. emotionless, just walking. Even now you're running and you're falling and, Whatever. But um, yeah, so part five, he's not in. It's an imposter killer. Um, and I remember watching it. And there are, though, some great scenes. The reason I bring up Corey Feldman, because that's a returning character. So that doesn't happen a whole lot in the Jason lexicon here in the tapestry of the Friday the 13th realm. Returning characters weren't a big thing. You had the girl from part one is in part two, but then she's quickly dispersed of uh Corey Feldman isn't in it. He, well, he does a guest role in five. He has these dream sequences where Jason returns, those are awesome. Now that's a maggoty-filled corpse. But the killer in part five is nice. It's a guy named Roy who watched his son get murdered at a children's home and decided to kind of cop Jason's uh, whole steez to, to kill people, I guess. Which, again, I don't think anybody was particularly psyched on that as a plot device. So, But then what it did, and maybe they're smarter than me because it set him up to do part six, Jason Lives, Probably the most enjoyable one in the series, honestly. It's so good. It's funny. And Jason is back. And there's no question now. He's been dead for years. 
a good old lightning bolt brought him back and he's more as tommy jarvis says third movie with tommy jarvis different actor in every movie but whatever he says to the sheriff jason's back and he's more powerful than ever and he was now we're now we're on to full-on undead full undead zombie unkillable can't stop jason nothing about this rotten corpse with a mask on is human and then you get part seven where he fights a psychic girl jason versus tina and it's awesome it's flipping awesome it also marks the beginning of kane hodder's tenure as jason who really see in part six a guy named cj graham played jason and he did great it was awesome jason was very like he was like Tim Allen from Tool Time. He had his tool belt on. He had gloves and shit. He had like all these, all kinds of stuff to use. And in seven, he's just a rotten mess monster. He's a full monster, dude. Um, and then eight, he goes to Manhattan. They tried to do something different. Paramount sells it to New Line. They do nine. People hate it. They do 10. I hate it. And then they did the remake. And now we sit patiently waiting for another movie. They got to figure out there's like court battles and stuff over who owns the character or the intellectual property but god you've got a you've got a fan base here every year there's a friday the 13th fan that's dying or, or, or succumbing to disease something that they don't get to see one more movie figure it out you've got you've got a hundred million dollar movie here just waiting are those that easy to come by that you have right. to not make it we're dying for another one when did the remake come out 2009 i mean dude, it was forever ago and they did pretty good. It was awesome. Michael Bay worked on that, right? He produced it. Yeah. Well, his his production company worked on it. Yeah. But, dude, that's one of the ones that they did pretty good. They kind of incorporated one through four uh, in a way. It wasn't the best movie in the world. But, dude, you know what? Credit where credit is due, man. Like, they did a good job. I'll tell you what. It was a far sight better than the Nightmare on Elm Street remake by leaps and bounds. Um I wanted a sequel, and they didn't do it though. Let me ask you something. So, are, do you know Alan Moore's Swamp Thing? Have you are you familiar with this saga? Uh, I mean, I'm f I have never seen it. I know what it is, and I know about it. And I have a, a lot of friends that like it, but I've never seen it. So, I'll, can I give you a little bit of the plot, or do you not want me? Of course, no, no. I, okay. I I'm one of the rare people that does not mind that. Okay, cool. So I've been reading it because I've been doing, I want to do an Alan Moore album because he did The Watchmen and like all sorts of icon, The Killing Joke, the, the the dark, you know, Batman story. Yeah, right on. Oh, that's awesome. I, I wanted to ask you this because it reminded me of the Jason origin story. So, so this guy's doing research on a way to make plants more nutritious and um, more sustainable and like be like food that people can eat to live forever. And then this guy comes and blows up his lab because he's trying to sabotage it because it's like a threat to his company. So the guy gets thrown into the swamp, like in Louisiana or Florida, and his research gets thrown into the swamp. And the crazy reveal is that the algae and all the muck and everything takes the bones of the person and then becomes the person but it's not the person instead of the person becoming like a swamp monster the swamp becomes the person who is now gone but then he's anthropomorphized and has this constant ennui that he is not going to be human he'll never find love but he has the shell of this person but he doesn't have a soul it's just like the flora of the of the pond has become this person so i was thinking like it's a similar origin story because the question of of the origin of Jason, it's like, did he, did he become the lake? Like, is he the lake? Is he the well, memory? Lars, yeah. you're blowing my mind right now, dude, because that was kind of my idea for, like, they found the bones right at the bottom of the lake. Like, Jason did die and was rotten. And he, like, that was kind of thing, like, not a demon, but, like, the essence of the lake and all that hurt and anger took a human form 
or a human-ish form. It's kind of in that world. That's what I was thinking when you were telling me that. I'm like, oh, it's yeah, kind of it's in. very Swamp that's Thing. That's the story of Swamp Thing, dude. That's incredible. It's a great story. And so then the reason why it's so revered and critically acclaimed is because Alan Moore, you know, he's he's so good with um, the intellectual element. And like they say he modernized comics because he made it so it's like not just good versus evil. It's this whole idea of what does it mean to be human? Like the, the the Watchmen, like the idea of like, what is good? What is bad? What happens when you're a superhero whose time is up? Swamp Thing is like, what happens when you are the result of your life's work that has been consumed by like, kind of like Moby Dick, like an uncaring aquatic reality through which your, um, your spirit lives, but it's not your spirit. And so that's dark. And so I feel like Jason, I, the, I wanted to ask you about this, like, Jason's motivation for killing is it because he misses his youth from this beautiful summer camp crystal lake like there's something that resonates with like his feeling of longing is he just evil no 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 i think dude you bring up a really good point and i think it kind of dances around i think the, the home base reason was um if you had to put like a real kind of black and white reason on it it was that he saw his mom get murdered um but then you know yeah he's he's punishing the kids at the the older kids, the teenagers or the young adults at the camp for essentially taking his life by their own negligence. That's that's the home base story. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I think as a kid, especially too, I kind of make my own deep assumptions and like pontificate and think about Jason and his motivations. Um, it, it, it got weirdly like, how do I say, like weirdly kind of hard right christian like if you did the drugs you died if right. you had sex you died um but that's just kind of i don't think that was on purpose i think that's just part of the but that's that's the home base reason now i'm sure there's all kinds of threads that we could kind of get into and dig in around there but yeah. i'm just so blown away right now by swamp thing dude i've always been aware of swamp thing i think i watched the old show um i love the watchman i'm not a huge comic guy watchman is incredible yeah i loved the movie i know a lot of the fans of the comics like I hear my friends that are big into it. They, they didn't love the movie. Some of them as much as I did. I thought the movie was incredible. I loved it so much. Then I read the comic. I read the comic after the movie, loved the graphic novel. Claude actually gave me his copies. Like, if you haven't read this, you need to read this. Oh, and it, cool. was, it was unbelievable. Then the HBO show. What did you think of that? So I, I'll admit, I haven't watched it yet, but like Mega Rand tells me I need to, and I, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Oh, it's incredible, dude. It's so, it's, it, <laughs> It's like in the future, right? It takes place after. Yeah. And I was worried. I'm like, well, I, you know, I, I know the stuff now. Like, is this going to, it, it holds up in a way that's, it's creative. It's so good. I really couldn't have enjoyed it more, dude. I did it in like two days, just right through. Cause I loved it so much. And so um, Rorschach is now like a, a, a like a alt-right kind of character is he becomes a villain. Dude, you got to just watch it. Okay. It's on HBO go, dude. Like yeah. you've got to watch it right away. It was so good. Um, I'm just getting the fact that I didn't even know that Alan Moore did these things. Like I guarantee, you know, this story so much deeper than I do, but I just know that Watchmen, the show, the HBO show, like they did it in a way that was, um, not just creative. And I guess like modern in a way, like it had heart. There were some tears. I would implore you to just watch it. Cool. Um, also I'm a little intimidated by your knowledge of it. Cause I'll probably mess something up and I don't want to ruin it for you. Honestly, <laughs> like you should watch it. dude. Yeah. It's that good. Like I bet. You and your lady pop it on. You'll love it. That Dude, guess what I'm doing right now? Game of Thrones for the first time. And I never saw it before. And I just finished season five last night. And my heart is broken, dude. Like, I am broken inside. 
it's John's, you know, I don't want to, it's old enough that I think spoilers don't yeah. spoil anything for me, but, um, every night I get to like immerse myself in this world. <laughs> and this is why I saved it, dude. This is why I saved game of Thrones. I knew I would like it, yeah. but it just wasn't time. And now after, um, I don't know if you heard like my mom died and then my two grandfathers died all within three months. Um, hence yeah. why I'm at my grandmother's house right now. Um, just been trying to spend time with her. You know, she was like, my other mom when I was a kid and she lost her daughter and her husband in a month. Oh so yeah, crazy. I'm but sorry, I get, Oh yeah. It's a dr- You know what, man? My grandmother had a really wonderful speech at my mom's service. And she said, I know my daughter's in a better place. If you don't believe that, that's your problem, but life goes on. And so do we. And it was yeah. powerful. She had me and my brother on her arm and she stood up there in front of everybody and said that. And she's a really spunky lady. She's 88 and filled with piss and vinegar. She's knocking on the door right now, actually. Hi, man. I was just talking about you. <laughs> I miss you too, Nanny. I'll be out in a minute. I'm doing my interview. Remember I told you I had my interview. Okie dokie. No, but I didn't fall asleep. It's only 104 degrees in here. I'm like pouring sweat in here. It's amazing. But, um, but getting to I, what a gift that every night me and my wife, we won't watch it without each other. We get to sit down and like immerse ourselves in this world that we're interested. It's just such a gift, dude. And yeah. I do love it. And um, the show will break your heart. You've seen Game of Thrones, I, I presume. Yeah, I don't know. Have you ever I have a song about Daenerys and we did a music video that's like a tribute to to Westeros. Oh, dude, I got to check it out. I probably didn't want because I never knew anything about Game of Thrones. Like we started this two weeks ago and we're already done with season five. Like we do. That's sad. There's been nights we stay up till three in the morning because we can't stop. We're like, oh, my God. Yeah, um, it's great. The production's so good, man. What happens at the end of that of season five? You said, yeah, season five. Jon Snow dies Oh, for the watch. And I just couldn't believe it, dude. I could not believe it. We've made uh, like a tangible effort to not talk about the show because now I get it after 10 years, spoilers are on you. They're not on They're They're on me. They're not on the, the public at large. Right. But I made a comment on Facebook to my close friends. Wow. We're going to finally start uh, game of Thrones are excited. And three different close friends of mine commented, just wait till episode nine, bro. And I'm like, don't say, why would you say that? Yeah. If you're going to be a spoiler, spoil the shit. That's like, not don't, helpful. Why would you yeah. say anything? I know. So now I know something crazy happens. Still took me by surprise. And then last night, dude, I, I couldn't believe my eyes. I cried a little bit, dude. Yeah. I was like, what? I'm such a softy when it comes. I mean, I want to be immersed. Music, art, movies. It's about dredging up feelings, right? Like it's about feeling it. And I felt I could not believe it. Um, the red wedding, same thing. You're like crying. <laughs> I cry every other episode of game of Thrones, but like, dude, I really thought I had the show pegged and I thought Jon Snow would be the ultimate, uh, the last one standing. And when he died, I just, even after the second stab, I'm like, no, it's not going to kill him. They're yeah. just scaring us with this. And then here he, and then, so I don't know what happens, dude. I've like stayed pretty ignorant in terms of game of Thrones. Like I'd heard the phrase red wedding before, but I had no idea. I wasn't thinking of it during that scene. Right. And right, when all right. that shit happened, it just, you know, it blew my mind. So I'm a big, big fan of the show. And I just, I feel really lucky that I get this escape and I also get to feel and kind of, you know, I think that's healthy and probably cathartic on some level, but, um, I would implore, I beg you as a friend to do go in on Watchmen, especially with your knowledge. I think you're really going to like it. Um, so I, I, I'll watch it and then I'll, talk to you about it and um that's tight 
Good morning, children. Children, please sit down. You all know me, Superintendent GTB. We have something extra special this morning. Something, hey, sit down. Gracie, Xavier, there's not gonna be any of that. Sit down. We have two very special professors with us today, MC Lars and Weird Science. They're here to teach all of us how to be indie rappers. Uh -huh. Here's a little rap about the steps that it takes to be an indie rapper Who knows, one day one of the greats I'm not saying that it's easy, but these steps could help If you follow them close, you can carve out a career for yourself Step one, get your hide ready to tour in a van The limelight might sparkle, but it's not real, man Step two, you gotta flood the internet with material Go cereal, till it spreads like venereal Step three, you gotta keep a close eye on your ticket stubs The only bottles you'll be popping is the water from the club Step four, you can forget about the champagne and fillets Cause it's more like Tostitos and old PB&J Step five, this is probably one of the most important Never sign to a major and let your heart get extorted Step six, you gotta book all the shows that you can And hopefully you get a chance to win the headliners fan Step seven, never mind all the pointing and the laughing Your girl won't be psyched, you spend all your time rapping Step eight, remember hip-hop's about being true Gotta go, peace, weird science, more work to do Swamp Thing.
Friday the 13th, Game of Thrones. Crazy, crazy interview. Thank you, Josh. Tune in next week for part two, which is even longer. And uh, it's great. It's a great discussion. We, we clear a lot of things up and uh, we catch up and it's awesome. So thank you, Josh. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And I'll see you all next week. Peace. Happy Labor Day.